Yo, what's up, everybody? It's another episode of Real Sankara Hours. This is a free episode. Free episode of Real Sankara Hours. Um, probably dopest black Marxist political podcast that's out there, if I may say, say so myself. Um, today is March 14th slash 15th, 2021. Um, it's been a year since this fucking pandemic started, and yeah, we're going to be... Uh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna kind of do some, I guess, a bit of uh, headlines, so to speak. But we're definitely gonna be gonna be looking at like just what this year has been like. So that's what you can look forward to in this episode. Um, follow us on Twitter at Sonkara Hours. Again, follow Real Sonkara Hours on Twitter. Um, the our name is at Sonkara Hours, and to uh, this is independent black media. Um, and if you want to support us and keep us going patreon.com slash real hours again patreon.com slash real hours five dollars a month gets you bonus episodes but if you pay anywhere from a dollar to four dollars a month you don't get bonus episodes but you do help uh keep the uh keep keep this podcast afloat so um anyway um it's you know your normal uh two hosts i'm adam hudson follow me at adam hudson five on twitter uh, this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. Um, yeah, I don't know. Twitter's Twitter's been getting real weird. I don't know. I've I've um <laughs> been working a busy with other things, so I've been kind of back and forth with Twitter. But every time I go back on Twitter, every time I look on Twitter, it's just like, oh, this is a reason to not be on Twitter anymore. <laughs> But we have to, we have to, I mean, like, I mean, uh, you know, it's positives of Twitter, but the discourse is just like, yeah, yeah I don't know. I, it's, it's a good way to see just like the pulse of everyone. Uh, and I don't know, there's been a lot of dumb stuff, but let's, instead of talking about that, we can do some quick hits, you know, in the Imperial periphery, I suppose. Yeah. Um. I guess. Yeah. We can. We can start with Senegal. The, the, yeah. There have been some uh major protests in uh Senegal. I think Yahoo News. Their headline, or this is BBC News, but it was on Yahoo. Uh, the BBC headline, is full of a bunch of Yahoos. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, the headline is Senegal protests. The country is on the verge of an apocalypse. So, um. Uh, yeah, like there is the an arrest of a, of an of of an opposition leader. Um, I want to make sure I get his name correct. If I mess it up, uh, apologies in advance. But uh, Usmani Sonko, so Mr. Sonko, he um, he he was face he faced a he's facing a rape allegation. Um, and I get, he was accused of disrupting public order, and um. Him and his supporters say that the accusations are politically motivated, but like one thing that the BBC noted is that the protests have also been fueled by economic inequalities and concerns over young people's standard standard of living. So it, it seems like the arrest of uh, some call like um, pretty much precipitated. Yeah, yeah these these protests and um, I think long simmering frustrations in Senegal that that are much deeper than you know his arrest and and to you know when we're talking about senegal and especially africa it's always important to keep in mind that 
the modern borders of Africa were drawn up by European colonial powers. And like one thing that, that I definitely on this podcast we're, we're trying to, um, I think make clear and hit home to people when it comes to looking at Africa is that Africa is still under neo-colonization. So even though there was, there were, there was, there was national independence throughout Africa in terms of liberating the countries from direct colonization. Um, a lot of these countries still maintain uh, neo-colonial ties to their former colonizers. So in the case of Senegal, it's France. And being that our podcast is named after Thomas Sankara, uh, if, you, if you look up the of how Sankara was assassinated, um, France definitely had, had uh, their role in it. So Yeah, yeah. France looms pretty heavily in Senegal. And um, there, Al Jazeera did an inside story on on the situation in Senegal a few days ago. And one of, one of like a lot of the main targets in the protest that, you know, when they turned a little more explosive were French companies, because there's still a lot of like very good tax break deals given to like, like French uh, conglomerates and multinationals. And that's actually one of the things the opposition leader, uh, he's, he's like a tax attorney or something. But he like 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 his pot like a big part of his following is that he was caught like exposed all the kind of corruption deals that uh, France has been getting as part of uh, they call it France Afrique and it's basically just like the neo colonial uh, nature of France's relationship with its former colonies because yeah. France. Yeah, I think like the a, a term I guess in English would be like the francophone a- African right. countries versus like anglophone. Right, right. The ones where like the official language is French, um, be- because France, like basically its little cute little welfare state, is propped up by you know pretty bold exploitation of its former colonies, and that so that is and the uh, the current president is someone who uh, basically has been in there two years and there's, I guess, rumblings. Though the election is a few years away, but people are worried about him, I guess, possibly seeking a third term. And also, uh, and I think this is also one of the reasons that sort of the protests got pretty explosive, was that like, like all of his previous opponents have somehow ended up being disqualified from the election uh, through legal uh, means, like through the court system, something has happened that like his major opponents have basically ended up being disqualified. So that's why I think there is that's one of the big reasons that there is such a strong reaction. The other th- the other things sort of the, I guess the tinder that you know makes it made it more an explosive situation is basically, you know, and this is true in a lot of global South countries is that, you know, basically there's like no jobs. Um, you know, this is a very youth led movement and specifically sort of the people who like young college graduates who have graduated in basically into no real economy. And there's, there's actually a fair amount of parallels because 
like in the interviews there's people who are complaining like you know they told us to go to college then we go to college then we graduate and there's no jobs and i'm like oh where have i heard this before uh you know and nor like leading to people like getting on boats trying to go to europe in that way but uh because of the anti-immigration turn in europe uh you know people young people can't leave to go to developed countries to be able to find work so they're there plus you know the covid response which people have you know put stress on any political system but specifically there's like a pretty strictly enforced nine o'clock curfew and so those are those are kind of the things that sort of are leading it like why people say that senegal could be like in an actual tipping point but uh it remains to be seen because i think protests are still ongoing but i you know the opposition leader has called for them to be more peaceful so we'll see what happens and and speaking of france and africa there's there's a um story in the new york times that was published uh like over a week ago and the headline is remote cia base in the sahara steadily grows um so there there is a um cia drone base in niger that um it was first reported in 2018 um but even if you go back to around uh 2012 um there was a drone base uh being constructed on, during the obama years in um burkina faso in, in uh wagadougou um so so like throughout um the whole sahara slash sahel region um the u.s military has been growing its operations but very secretively particularly through the cia um, if you guys remember, like, going back a couple of years ago, during, like, the early years of the Trump administration, there were, um, like, a handful of U.S. commandos who were killed in Niger, and people were like, well, what the, what, why are there U.S. <laughs> troops in Africa? Like, how did they get there? Um, so, the way this ties to France is, like, especially when it comes to the U.S. military in Africa, and this is something, like, we're going to keep coming back to, because I think this this is going to be an ongoing issue, but I wanted to mention this because I think it's important. Um, uh, the, the, the NATO intervention in Libya in 2011, which happened in the context of the um, Arab Spring. This is, this is 10 years ago at this point. Um, yeah. So, the Arab yeah, Spring. Yeah, like, almost 10 years ago. Or yeah. Almost exactly. Yeah, almost exactly 10 years ago. So the Arab Spring, these uprisings in the Arab world against um, dictatorships, it spread to Libya and um, there are protests uh, against uh, Muammar Gaddafi. And, um, you know, like there was at the time. People were saying um, Gaddafi is about to commit a genocide against uh, the people of Libya, Libya. Therefore. The West has to intervene now. Thanks, Samantha Power. So yeah, and like, because I I remember the time like whether he was going to commit a genocide like is really up in the air. But what happened is that like okay, the United States and um, you know NATO, especially France, um, France played a France played a very big role along with um, Britain and Italy. Um, they provided for the most part like a lot of air support um, in, in terms of helping. 
basically it wasn't even it got to the point where it wasn't just protesting it was like you know uh like a civil war essentially yeah yeah i mean there were definitely some armed mercenaries uh who had gotten arms from well probably the usual suspects yeah and so um so anyway so Gaddafi was not just overthrown but he was uh killed and so and sodomized with a bayonet and paraded around in the streets i believe yeah yeah and so so what happened is that like after Gaddafi was overthrown and uh, and killed it created a massive like political fallout that had deeper ramifications not just for libya but for like um much of the african continent particularly the sahara and the the sahara desert and the sahel regions like the country country that border like the south of libya and so Gaddafi used um uh fighters from the neighboring um Tuareg or Tamashek ethnic group who were nomadic people and so when he fell like it was just basically like this political vacuum with a ton of guns lying around so the Tamashek were there a lot of their goal has been like trying to you know uh, they have like their own kind of separatist movement but then um I guess you could say like Al-Qaeda affiliates kind of merged with that vacuum and so it created a whole freaking mess um, and it's led to instability, particularly in countries like Mali. Um, and so, in the context of the quote-unquote war on terror, uh, France has been deepening, deepening its uh, military intervention in West Africa. And who's partnering with France? Good old Uncle Sam. And so, hence why there's a CIA drone base um, in in uh, Niger. And so, I'll, I'm going to mention uh, t- two paragraphs from this um, New York Times article. It said um, uh, hold on one second. Uh, just, wait, actually, I'll read three paragraphs. This, this, this will contextualize it. Um, the Pentagon's Africa Command operates MQ-9 Reaper drones from Niamey, Niger's, uh, from Niamey, uh, Niger's capital. 800 miles southwest of uh Dirko. so that's where the ca drone base is um and from a 100 million dollar drone base in agadez niger 350 miles west of Dirko, the military has carried out drone strikes against qaeda and islamic state militants in libya but none since september 2019 some security analysts question why the united states needs both military and cia drone operations in the same general vicinity to combat insurgents in libya and sahel in addition france which has about 5100 troops in the sahel region began conducting its own reaper drone strikes from niami against insurgents in niger burkina faso and mali um by the way niger burkina faso and mali these are all countries that countries that were formerly colonized by france um a recent report by the International Crisis Group concluded that the military first strategy of France and its allies, including the United States, has failed. The Research and Advocacy Organization, which focuses on conflict zones, noted in its report that focusing on local peacemaking efforts could achieve more. So, like, in, in this particular uh, drone base that this New York Times article is talking about, um, it's been conducting uh, surveillance f- um, flights, so drone surveillance fires so so drones can do like surveillance and armed strikes so this one so far has been conducting um surveillance flights the uh, there's another um 
uh, like a surveillance base in Burkina Faso that was started under the Obama during the Obama administration. So like this is going back at least to you know a decade of the United States military increasing its presence in Africa, and it's under the rubric of like the quote-unquote war on terror and looking at Africa as like another front in the war on terror. But this is definitely going parallel with France's ongoing um, neo-colonial relationship with this former, uh, you know, with, with West Africa. So I wanted to, I wanted to bring that in with um, the protests in Senegal uh, as well. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Our, and actually there's like a new shakeup, which is that, AFRICOM, our old friends, are being merged into, like, the U.S. Army, Europe, and Africa headquarters. Like, it, it's being merged into a Europe and Africa thing. And, you know, kind of my initial take, though, I'll have to look more into it, is that that's a means of bringing France in uh, officially because Macron, uh, you know, the president of France, is a real megalomaniac and is very much about, like, you know, reasserting France's muscularity on the world stage or whatever. Specifically in the wake of Trump, he was like making a whole bunch of noise about basically kind of doing away with NATO. And you can never do away with NATO, even though there's no Soviet Union anymore. NATO must always exist forever. Um, And so I think part of, you know, what's going to be happening is that France is going to get brought in as like more of an official junior partner and that, like, the, France's operations and the U.S.'s operations are going to become more coordinated and streamlined. Yeah, and also AFRICOM, Africa Command, the headquarters of it is not in Africa. It's actually right. in Germany. So, exactly. So, the, a lot of, Af- like, it was uh, it was very difficult for, <laughs> because I think, from what I understand, that there was a lot of pushback, and so the U.S. just li- literally couldn't establish its headquarters in, Af- in, in Africa. <laughs> yeah, so, no, no, no country's that cucked enough, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, it's we're already eighteen minutes in, so I think um, we we can move on to, yeah, like the overall uh, meat of this episode, which is yeah, it's been one year. Yeah. Since this... though, yeah. Though I, uh, I guess as part of a transition, I did want to do a shout out. Uh, oh yes, to yes, yes. to the nurses of the Maine Medical Center, uh, which is the biggest hospital in Maine. It's the you know one of those things, and they've obviously you know been on the front lines during the pandemic, and the the nurses are now trying to unionize. They're trying to form a union. And the hospital management has been giving some heavy pushback. They even brought in a, like, you know, a union-busting consultant. And they vaccinated him before they, you know, vaccinated, like, anyone else. Uh, um, mm. You know, in a great little uh, show of priorities. But, yeah, that, that's just been a ongoing struggle. Um, though I think they're they're definitely making headway in it but there's just been a lot of pushback from the from the hospital management but this is at the you know these are the kinds of situations that develop you know because the amount of you know the like it's been absolute hell for you know nurses in hospitals this past year and 
that that's those are exactly the kind of conditions that lead people to you know realize that you know they do need a union to uh help advocate for them and so uh this this is a big you know this is this is a pretty big uh situation in in portland in portland maine so uh you know just solidarity to them and uh you know best of luck but yeah it's a good it's a good representation of all the uh different things that have been developing in the past year yeah and um yeah yeah that's a good transition to um just i mean it's officially been uh one year since um the official start of this pandemic and it's also been a year since um Brianna Taylor was killed by police in um, Louisville, Kentucky, and there really hasn't been any justice for her. So, you know, like this, this whole 2020, I think, has been marked by um, some major national and international events. Um, the first, you know, major event was the um, COVID-19 pandemic. Um I should also just say, you know, just publicly that I did get the vaccine. Well, I got, I mean, there's different vaccines, but I got the first dose of Pfizer and I'm fine right now. Um, so, you know, uh, how, are, how are the microchips feeling? Uh, really good. Um, you know, I'm, um, I'm in communication with Xenon and, nice. um, the lizard people and it feels really good. Yeah. Um. Microchips are great, guys. Microchips are really cool. Uh, anyway, no, I'm just yeah, I got the I got um I got Pfizer uh last like yeah like last week um so I have to go in for my second dose a couple weeks from now, beginning of uh first week of April. So um yeah, I was fine. I just had like some soreness in my arm, um some muscle soreness, but that's supposed to be normal. And then um. Since I work in education and I live in California and there's been a push to reopen schools, like I got bumped up to the next phase for vaccination. So um, that's how I was able to get uh, an appointment. So um, I say that because like, you know, it's just been like a really fucking rough ass year. And personally, I feel pretty grateful that I, um, I was able to get the vaccine, but just knowing that like there are so many people who died of COVID who did not not need to die and it's especially because of how this country completely fucked up from top to bottom it the the response to pandemic is you know that's um and also like how that even impacted uh you know our own podcast um yeah yeah i mean you can actually i haven't gone back and listened to it but uh yeah i mean my i lost my dad to covid-19 and so it's been extremely i it, i mean that's obviously been cast a whole shadow over the entire year and it's made me think about the entire thing differently but it is uh, yeah it's crazy in that yeah i guess one tomorrow technically because uh, it's March, it's the Ides of March over here on the East Coast. Um, I remember, like, the official state, 
the official like shelter in place order or the state of emergency got declared from the governor on the same day that like my <laughs> the company that owned my building tried to evict me um they ended up you know it was an extremely stupid situation and they obviously ended up not succeeding but it was just like that plus the lockdown uh just kind of made everything just real crazy and then i was out of work for two and a half months which i didn't mind because i was getting like the unemployment the original like bernie unemployment checks but it was you know like yeah i don't know man it's it's just been very strange uh yeah to to have gone through something where you know this is like an absolute it should be seen as a national catastrophe. Oh, I guess. yeah, yeah. Catastrophe is the right word. That's why I feel like, on a personal level, I'm happy that I was able to. I'm able to get the vaccine safe and sound. But it's like knowing that that has happened in the context of like over half a million people dying of COVID who did not need to die because of how much we fucked this up is like. Again, I'm glad that like people like myself are able to get it, and and it seems like more people are able to get it. Yeah, but, like, yeah. My, my mom's been able. My mom's got her got her first dose, though. I get to wait until June, but uh, it's yeah. It's I mean, it's it's. I think we're you know we're reaching I guess the end game or something. I think people's yeah. in people's minds, you know, you know how like when you see something is about to happen, or it's 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 like senioritis, really. Like yeah, one, yeah, once you're like, oh, I'm almost done with school, then you just stop caring, and I think I feel like we're about to head into that, um, and that could go pretty poorly. Uh, yeah, yeah, because like I mean, I, I was reading a story, uh, like in a in a San, San Francisco Chronicle about like the 1918 flu uh, pandemic and like how like you know toward the end like people kind of thought they were in the clear like oh like you know we're we're safe now and then people stopped wearing masks and then they experienced another surge so you know we're not quite out of this yet but i mean i think the fact that i, I was watching um cody johnston's uh youtube channel some more news and he, he's pretty good i like i like his stuff and like something he mentioned in, like one of the headlines i thought was uh pretty um striking in terms of like i guess good news which is that the, the the we were able to produce a vaccine for this virus within 11 months which normally takes about 10 years and the reason why we we're able to do that is because of massive global cooperation and that's why that's why like there is so much like international cooperation because this is a pandemic that impacted the entire fucking world and pretty much brought the world pretty much like shut the global economy down and so yeah. there is this greater sense of urgency for the world to cooperate more, despite having a fucking numbskull as a president, that like we were able to produce several effective vaccines for this virus within a year when it normally takes 10 years, which I think like I want to mention is, is a little bit of good news, which is to show that like we do have like the... um like not like global knowledge expertise and resources to tackle pandemics like this and one of the ways we can do that is through international cooperation so like if you apply that to climate change 
um, and renewable energy, there is a lot we can do in terms of the resources we have available. But a lot of it does have to do come down to fucking political will, which ties into how I feel about just the fact that over half a million people died. I think those deaths are a result of political will. Like the people, did, yeah. There are people who died who didn't have to die because of just like how fucking not even incompetent, but I would just say like like sociopathic many members of the U.S. government are that like. There are people literally in the U.S. government who just not only don't care, but like in some ways, I feel like some people just they get off on people suffering. And oh yeah, it's, it's it's so the word catastrophe I think is completely applicable to how we've handled this. Yeah, I mean, more Americans have died from COVID nineteen than died in World War II, uh, I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's yeah, it's up there. Like over over half a million people have died. Like yeah. Like, Americans, like U.S. citizens, like we're not even like when it comes to the world, like it's I think in the millions. I I don't know the exact number. Yeah, but. yeah, we're, and we're holding it down. Uh, I think Brazil is uh, number two. Yeah, so they take after us. But yeah, I I mean certainly, uh, if this were you know let's say a social a communist country, uh, you know, Western commentators would be talking about how. The government murdered five hundred thousand people. Uh, if you apply, right. if you apply the way you know events in other countries that we don't like are talked about, then it would have been yes, the United States government, the totalitarian uh, government, murdered five hundred thousand people, and you know you can I guess argue that. But what is definitely true, especially when it became clear that there wasn't going to be another shutdown was that the interests of finance capital or, and just capital more broadly, you know, wall street, but also just like your local bourgeoisie your regional bourgeoisie, uh, the need for them to be able to maintain some semblance of profits was more important than uh, human life. And, Yes. You know, this is this is a violent system and in every American politician, especially at the national level, accepts that there's just a certain amount of death that's built into the system that could be preventable, but for political reasons we choose not to do anything about. And so a lot of them were pretty, I guess, used to the idea though, certainly this was more stress on any politician and a lot of them were i think pretty pissed that they had to do some actual governing right now because a lot of you know especially mayors you know they don't all all a mayor of a big city really does is just meet with corporations and try mm-hmm. and offer them tax breaks to move there and then also uh you know make sure that the police budget increases every year that's like all a mayor does and governors I don't, I don't really know what governors do. Like, when they talk about Cuomo, it's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so they're like, like, what does the governor of New York do other than, like, sexually harass people? <laughs> like, I guess that's a glib joke, but... <laughs> I, don't, I don't... Like, what else? what else is... Like, the idea that a state governor is going to, like, exercise any sort of sovereign authority over, you know the global center of finance capital is a little weird. So I, 
yeah, it's it's just the thing that like really concerns me is basically that people are gonna get very excited and everyone's like, oh man, this summer's gonna be fucking crazy. And I'm <laughs> sure it's gonna be it's gonna be a little it's gonna be pretty wild though. I think next summer is next summer is like when all the concerts come back and stuff and everyone can have and we can get back to our typical American seven earth consumption lifestyles. But like I just I don't understand like what there is to be happy about. I don't there's certainly nothing to celebrate about this. I mean, you know, people need to blow off steam and reconnect. I mean, on a personal level, just like I don't know, my like my perceptions of reality because so many things have been like my entire life has basically been mediated through a computer screen, uh, which, you know, I was always like a heavily online kid. But, you know, this even someone like me, it's like there's still there's still like I still have limits, you know, still like miss just being able to like go out and be around people because I do like being around like lots of people, even though I'm kind of a loner like that. But it's just like, I don't know, like, yeah, social skills, I guess, like how to talk to people. It's been I don't know. It's just been very weird. But I guess. This is what it's like to live through a historical, not just event, because I, you know, we like growing up in the United States, at least like you, you're understood, like, you know, especially in the 90s, it's like, oh, it's the end of history, but you get events, right? Like 9-11 is the obvious one where it's like, what, you know, you remember where you were when this specific event happened. Right. But this is a pro- this was a process. This was a whole extent extended process. And so it isn't just like one shocking event. It's that drawn out over an entire year. And yeah, that's the kind of thing that just completely upends your understanding of anything. And I guess it's almost given me like a little more sympathy for, I don't know, just like the average person, maybe like 100 years ago in the last pandemic when there was also world war one going on right yeah and just like right (laughs) yeah just like every just everything going hell around you um it really makes you question like there's nothing that any of us grew up with that could have prepared us for this so you you know i'm I'm glad like there is this article in the new york times this is last november but it was talking about the remote learning and the quarantine pandemic and like there's a massive increase in anxiety and depression among teenagers (laughs) like in a way that's like it is pretty troubling because um is this something like even teachers week we've had to discuss is about mental health among students um because like you know there there is this Maybe, you know, here's the thing is like, as both Peter and I are millennials, so, you know, uh, um, you know, I feel like in some ways we've been through similar shit like this. Because when the pandemic first started, to me, it kind of reminded me of, uh, oh, this is like the 2008 financial crash again. Okay, so it's going to be shit. All right, cool. I know, I know, I know how to deal with shit because we dealt with shit. Whereas like the, the 2008, 2009 financial crash, I, I remember being very, um, 
despondent, you know, like very mentally despondent and damn near depressed because it's like, oh, I, you know, I worked hard in high school and got an education at like a top five university, Stanford, and then I graduate in 2010 and like, oh, fuck, there's this horrible economy caused by a global financial crash caused by neoliberalism and Reaganism, um, which... You know, in college, like, I spent a lot of time being an, an anti-war activist and involved in activist stuff. And it's like, oh, fuck, all this stuff, the horrible things I studied about the world in college. Like, I go back, it's like, oh, this is reality. This is how, this is how <laughs> everything, it, it is like, oh, yeah, the world is as fucked up as I thought it was. Um, But then, like, the pandemic, it's like, okay, it's kind of repeated this. But with... For teen teenagers and, like, recent college grads, like, they don't really have that kind of, um, I guess, experience of dealing... I mean, well, depending on how old they are, like, they were probably really young when the when the financial crash happened, but, like... Yeah, I mean, they would have been in elementary school, and they right. don't remember a world before right. the war on terror. Right, exactly, yeah, so it's, like, I'm thinking about, like, Gen Z and, like... You know, like, I, I, in some ways, I, I feel like the mental health aspects of this pandemic, um, I think we've only yet to fully understand, both for teenagers, but also for, like, for millennials when it comes to, like, how we think about, you know, because millennials, like, we're pretty much, most of us are in our, our freaking 30s, and actually this decade is when a lot of us will hit 40, so... Hmm. In ter in terms of adult adulthood for us, um, is looking very very different than like even Gen Xers, uh, who you know have they were always like the jaded generation, but it's like I yeah, know, well man, they they had the they had the opposite because they grew up under Reagan, and so they had basically like had internalized that and were all jaded and stuff. But then sort of they emerged into adulthood in the nineties. And yeah. so it was like, oh, well, I guess that was all about nothing. And we actually have nothing to complain about, though. We're still pissed off for some reason. But instead of figuring out the structural causes, we're just going to, you know, say slurs and call it comedy and say that it's edgy, I guess. I don't know. I I have a lot of a lot of beef with Gen X. Uh, I feel like they don't get enough shit. Uh, but they, you know, because they didn't really. They, they, well, I don't know. They just didn't understand, like, collective action, I guess, was their main problem. But, yeah, I don't know. It, like, we, like, this is definitely a new phase in, like, the American subjectivity, I guess, is how to say it. Because this is, like, this is just an unquestionable L at the highest level. But America can never admit that it's taken an L. I mean, yeah. they won't, we still don't admit that we, we, quote-unquote, whatever, I'll say we, uh, still can't admit that we lost the Vietnam War. So, right. like, the idea, the idea, and, I mean, it's funny, like, from, like, the more patriotic crowd, uh, you know, not, like, the total chuds, but the, you know, maybe, like, the Republican simps, um, who oh, just, like the like the Keith Olbermann types. Yeah, well, not even the libs, just like the people who just like love America, like 
they just love like going to you know Applebee's and driving their trucks that are too big to fit in their garages and their exurbs and you know yeah they're racist and cretins but you know not any more than your average democrat they're just they're just simps for america because they just love they just honestly do believe that they live in the greatest country in the world and i have no idea how any of them have been able to process it i mean i th- i know i know that like the owner of the place that i used to work at like would always you know when you talk about it, he's like oh no it was like the kids having parties that's what's causing the surge or, or whatever like find some other reason to you know justify why like we were staying open um which is a different question but uh yeah i don't know it's like yeah the effects and then yeah the and then the kids like my nephew who like just finally like had his first day of school uh like actual school like had to go to kindergarten on zoom like yeah what are what are the effects of that i mean who knows who knows what's going to happen but i i just worry that like america is incapable of the introspection required to actually understand like what happened and actually that'll be a pretty good segue into the other kind of major event of 2020 which was the uh police killing of george floyd and actually like i want to kind of take it back because i mentioned brianna taylor like before george floyd like there was like a series of events that led up to it because there was the um killing of ahmaud arbery in georgia by like these white redneck vigilantes one of whom was a former cop who just killed him just because you yeah, know I, they, I, they... I i i would say that there are like Actual rednecks would disagree with calling these, like, fucking <laughs> petty bourgeois pieces of shit rednecks, but they, yeah. those dumbasses think that they're rednecks because that's the only way they can, that, yeah, those people, like, steal working class valor all the time, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, chuds, there you go, we'll say these yeah. chuds, assholes, yeah, yeah. Um, cause there is, yeah, they got, he got killed by some chuds in fucking um georgia um uh, and then there is an amy cooper one in new york city where she you know threatened to call the police on a black man because he was like hey um don't uh put your dog there where the sign says you shouldn't put your dog there so there are these events happening and then the pandemic and then george floyd and i want to say that in context because i think like this was all kind of snowballing into the eruption of of protests that happened throughout the country and that had glo- global ramifications. And since, as you know, as as a Pan Africanist, I want to say that like one thing that was very striking is that the because of how because everybody was like I think kind of locked in and seeing like had to see George Floyd lose his fucking life for nine minutes um it was a moment where like people of african descent throughout the world like were were united like even the african union like spoke out against it and a lot of heads of different african governments even um pressured the un and and condemned the united states for um systemic racism so like there is there is you know for people who say like you know pan-africanism is dead it's a you know silly concept like 
you know, it has its, like, kind of ups and downs, but, like, you know, that, as a political tendency, it never goes away. And I think, like, there is a very crucial flashpoint in Pan-African history when it came to the, the, the George Floyd murder. Um, and I believe in Ghana, I, th- I think there's a... Um, memorial for george floyd if i'm if i'm not if, if i'm not mistaken um but uh like the george floyd protest i think like that was really the second wave of black lives matter protests the first was you know after michael brown and in ferguson protests in 2014 but this is like on, on another wave of another way uh, another level of um i think militancy that we hadn't seen like in, in a lot of ways i feel like 2020 was like our 1968 in- yeah yeah i mean in some ways and this is like the very kind of weird thing is that sort of the scale of things keep ha- keeps growing like this was a big this was arguably bigger than 1968 in terms yeah. of how how widespread it was uh but it's just like the political possibilities just keep narrowing uh, so it's very weird but yeah, I mean, this was, it was like, an, I think in also many ways, it emph- it represented like a new shift in that movement, like a new phase. Yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah, this is something I want to get into. So th- th- thanks for that. Like, because I think like with, with um, this, the post, I would say like the 2020 post Floyd wave of like, I guess you could say Black Lives Matter. And I'm I'm gonna get into Black Lives Matter financing, by the way, later on. Yeah. Before before I forget, I want to make a mental note of that. Um, I think what happens, like, because because of like the video and how widespread the protests were, um, uh, like it it was it was it it kind of dissipated very quickly. But I think what happened is that I've noticed people have gotten a lot more uh more sharp with language i think the language in the discourse has changed but that's not the same as like a change in actual policy political changes the changes in material conditions etc etc things were like changes that would actually improve the collective well-being of black people in the united states and black people globally um but I think what's happened is that, like, like for example, you know, there's been this growth in, like, the anti-racist, uh, you know, book club industrial complex. Like, there's, you, you know, like, there's people, and especially, like, you know, some elements of white, liberal white America have, like, gotten a lot more clever when it comes to, like, okay, I have to read these kinds of books to be anti-racist. Like, is it what was really weird was seeing like people like white people on instagram and social media like some of the talking points like for example um it's not enough to be not racist you must be anti-racist everybody was saying that like right after flood i'm like huh everybody's must be barred from the same fucking like it's like some like white people memo went out that was yeah like, well that's what <laughs> social media is now. right no it's... but it, it was yeah it was like it was kind of like okay everybody we've all read uh robin d'angelo and like the negroes are mad so here's what you gotta say boom just it's not enough to be not racist you have to be anti-racist okay how are you gonna be anti-racist uh check with you later like and and this is where like i and i want to i think this is important because 
Ugh, like this is where I get I I get annoyed because I think people mistake some shallow representation or tokenism or uh uh fluffy language or the kind of feel your pain thing. And the reason why I get frustrated is because black people have been through this before and nothing really changes and I feel like I'm seeing the same thing over again but this time it's like a different year 2020 2021 post George Floyd and all that um and in a lot of ways I think like um people people have gotten clever when it comes to language and saying like the term uh, systemic racism like because because I remember like when when I first got into political writing this is like (laughs) speaking of decade this is the first time I started like getting serious about political writing was a fucking decade ago. Um, and I do remember writing about police violence. Um, but this was going back to Trayvon Martin. So that was 2013. And I do remember saying the term systemic racism because like, um, that word actually meant something versus like racism in terms of like individual racism or prejudice or anything. So like the term systemic racism has been kind of co-opted by the liberal establishment. And now it's like kind of being used as like, yeah, we're going to challenge systemic racism, but the way they're challenging it is with, um, for example, the George Floyd justice and policing act of 2021 that Congress passed. (laughs) And even if you look at like the actual things that the bill says, um, well, first of all, uh, Activists on the ground were calling for a defunding of the police. There's no defunding of poli- police departments here. If oh anything, no! Oh no! Yeah, the yeah that bill gave them more money. Yeah, they gave them more money for like training and de-escalation. So it says okay, like some of the th- some of the parts of the bill are like work to end racial and religious profiling. Okay, that's that's really vague. work to work. That's and that's super vague. Um, uh, they said like. They're going to ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants in certain situations. Because, um, like, for example, like, they say banning no-knock warrants in drug cases. That still means they can do no-knock warrants in other cases, but not for, like, drug cases. Um, or, or they just knock very softly. Right, and right exactly. There's a ton of wiggle room when it comes to this. Um, l- limiting military equipment. to So this is like, oh, we're going to limit it. We're not going to end it. We're just going to limit it. Um, hold police accountable in court. By the way, I'm reading from a... Um, a, a, a fact sheet on, on this and so like hold hold police accountable hold police officers accountable in court which is that's the bare minimum by the way yeah that, um, that that's also a buzzword that's become completely meaningless holding people accountable yeah and then also improve transparency by collecting data so it's like collecting more data on police killings because i remember like back in 2014 what was an issue particularly in media and why Black Lives Matter became such a crucial flashpoint, which is that black people have known that like police have been killing black people for like decades. But the issue in the media was that like there was no um, database to keep track of like how yeah. often police. So that was left to like um, civil liberties organizations, um, uh, 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 racial justice organizations, activists, um, independent media to keep track of this stuff. Yeah. And so. So it's like, okay, these, this is all like, um, these are very, very shallow reforms that aren't really, by the way, if these reforms were implemented, they wouldn't have prevented George Floyd's death. 
or no, or I, I even doubt like even Breonna Taylor's death. It wouldn't prevent a bunch of these police killings, but because like the mainstream liberal establishment has been able to um, co-opt some of the language of Black Lives Matter, they're using the language to just like pass some uh, shallow reforms that don't lead to the change that we actually need. So I wanted to make that, that's why I wanted to make the distinction between like, I think people have gotten clever with language, but in terms of policy and change in the system, like there really isn't that much change within the system. Like the system itself is still operating as is. Like police are still killing and brutalizing black people even, even, even as we speak. So like fundamentally, like the machine, the, the machinery of like, of, of death, of like, death against black people like that that's still ongoing but the only difference is that like because of how widespread these protests are i think the political establishment in sectors of like white liberal america have like become a little bit more adept at the language they're using to talk to talk about race and seem progressive but that doesn't mean like that there's going to be real change uh, when it comes to policing, or even like overall change in the collective yeah. material conditions of Black America. Yeah, though I do also think that the liberals are not as slick as they think they are, and that people have a pretty intuitive understanding of like, yeah, people can say a bunch of slick shit, but then not actually do anything. And I, you know, one of the things that I noticed at the time. Uh, is that the reason the protests, uh, you know, in the middle, in basically the Memorial Day weekend into the first week of June, uh, like the reason they were able to explode so quickly uh, and so militantly was that basically all those liberal organizations who basically sole purpose is to funnel any possible revolutionary energy back into the system were caught completely flat-footed. They had no, I like, nobody foresaw that this was going to happen or at the scale that it was. And so they couldn't get the people out in front uh, to, you know, make the call to the police chief to, like, stand down or whatever and let them have their march or whatever. Because, yeah, you would have, like, the liberal march that the police would, like, not... I mean, actually, that's not even true because, like, the like in Columbus, Ohio, like, the Congress, the congressional representative who is, like, a very kind of, you know, machine institutional Democrat, like, she ended up getting pepper sprayed. And so, like, the police response was too violent and too goonish for the liberals to get out in front of it. And so it just kind of kept snowballing or i guess like it was like a combo chain really um Mm -hmm. and and you know it got like like people were legitimately scared like they brought in blackwater for the Capitol. i mean people made it to the white house lawn i mean trump famously was hiding in a bunker like there was all sorts of new counterinsurgency tactics uh digitally i remember just seeing a whole bunch of weird like bot shit uh, like all over Twitter. I mean, that was that was one of the weird things. It was like, oh right, this is why, this is. I want to say this is why I was on Twitter in the first place. But it was like, oh, 
you know, like social media was the only place you could see some of like the worst shit people were doing. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it was a good, uh, I don't want to say preview, but it was a good, I guess, case study in, uh, you know, what like real social unrest on a national scale looks like. And it's, I don't think it's any much of a bold, uh, claim to make that like some, we're going to see more of that in the next decade. And speaking, um, what I was saying earlier about the finances. So, um, the black lives matter global network foundation finally admitted that (laughs) it took in over $90 million last year. $90 $90 million. We did a previous episode in which, like, there was a local Black Lives Matter chapter in um in Southern California, like Inland Empire area, that was made a, um, they criticized the Global Network Foundation and were criticizing, like, their lack of transparency and also the fact that this Global Network was willing to work with the Democratic Party and the liberal establishment, whereas, like, activists on the ground, like, had more radical demands. Um, well, so the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation took in over ninety million dollars last year in twenty twenty, um, and uh, in 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 their impact report, uh, the Global Network said we want to uplift Black joy and liberation, not just Black death. We want to see Black communities thriving, not just surviving. And like, um, so they said like they committed twenty one point seven million in grant funding to official and unofficial BLM chapters, as well as thirty black led organizations. It ended twenty twenty with a balance of more than sixty million after spending nearly a quarter of its assets on the grant funds and other charitable giving. So it's like there's been like a lot of like like people, and this is uh, other black people I, like I know have been wondering like, okay, where the hell is all this money going? Like there's been a lot of people who've been donating to black lives matter but black america collectively is not seeing much of a cent of that money including like many local black lives matter chapters and even other like black liberation organization and this is like you know um uh i'm a member of all african people's revolutionary party and, and this one thing i've noticed with like other black radical organizations um and even as talking to a friend of mine about this is like there are like black liberation radical organizations some of which like have a legacy like the all african people's revolutionary party we were started back in 1968 by kwame and kruma um so there are black radical organizations that have been around for a long time and some they're newer but are still doing important work but um, you know, like to do that work requires financial support, and um, you know, like the, these kinds of organizations don't receive nearly as much money as like the Black Lives Matter Global Network. And if much of that money is to like you know do speaking fees and book deals and TV yeah. deals, consulting jobs, or like getting a seat seat at the table with the Democratic Party, where meanwhile other black organizations that have roots in the community and with more radical politics like they don't see that kind of money so that's that's an issue i have with like how but but this kind of fits into the larger larger context of how like black lives matter just as a as a phrase has been totally co-opted by the uh, mainstream 
American political establishment. So anyone can just say Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, hashtag, put it on social media, but like not be accountable to the black community, not have roots to the black community, and just use that hashtag for whatever agenda that they want, but still not be rooted in yeah black liberation and that's that's just you know that's a problem i have but i think that's a a, to me i think that's a lesson of um 2020 of like of 2020 which is how like the language has been watered down the phrase has been co-opted and so like i think oh man the brand emails oh man yep yeah it's all branding at this point (laughs) black lives matter is like a a freaking brand at this point especially with 90 million dollars just in one year there's so there's so much you could do with 90 million dollars i mean you could like outfit an army with 90 million dollars oh yeah Uh, like like you could like and even not just weapons i mean generators like you know build like you can build like physical locations (laughs) uh you know community centers health clinics uh fucking land i mean you could just buy land and you know use that to develop i mean like uh a whole bunch of shit like there's there's so many things you could do and it's just like there's a lot yeah there's a lot of liberal guilt money out floating around there and you know there are organizations that basically do just serve as clearinghouses for people to write off checks to be like, oh, look, see, you know, we're doing we're doing our part. Don't smash our windows. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> they can write it off as a tax write off. I mean, yeah, it's 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 such an industry at this point. But it just when you think about like 90 million dollars, like t- you, you could I mean, how much clean water could you get? I mean, easily you could yeah. I think I think just 27 million dollars is enough to fix flint um you know it's like that's the thing that does make me like stoke like the righteous fury is just like there is so there's like there's just so much you could do and i guess one thing i will say because i have been feeling pretty despondent about just like the hopes of the future um you know as i often am having uh you know dealt with depression my whole life but uh i was listening to the hell black podcast and also millennials are killing capitalism which uh are also very righteous black uh marxist podcasts in their own right that you should check out and you know it did give me some hope that like there are like there are also a lot of people out there who do get it and are you know doing working to do like the actual necessary work for liberation and you know if you could like it's just infuriating that like if those people had 90 million dollars instead of you know the people on fucking k street like it would have been like like we could be we could get a lot further as well is what i'll say yeah yeah seriously um actually that's a good way to end end it yeah that's yeah this are we're already over an hour well um i'm not gonna do fucking grammy's commentary i just want to make a note i just want to make a note that um the grammys are on and um fuck the grammys yeah i don't even why are we having grammys still i don't even know if people were i don't i don't don't, yeah i don't know why are we having fucking grammys 
America doesn't deserve anything nice. Uh, that was the other thing that was like one of the reasons everything got so crazy in June was there was no sports, no distractions. And when there are no like you have to remember, like how many fucking distractions are exist to, you know, pull people, everyone's attention everywhere else from where it needs to be. And if everyone could just focus like we re- I like we really do have the power to bring this whole thing down. Um, it's just a matter of coordination because I do th- I do also think that like the consciousness is there among perhaps enough people, but the resources and the organization, the coordination is what is missing. Um, but those are technical problems that can be worked out. So definitely, yeah. That's a yeah. That's a good way to end. Um... Well, anyway, yeah. Thank, thank you all for uh, listening and supporting this supporting this podcast, Real Sankara Hours. Um, like I said at the beginning of the episode, um, five dollars a month gets you bonus episodes. Um, one dollar between one and four dollars helps you support support this podcast, and you can support us at Patreon, um, patreon.com slash Real Sankara Hours. Again, patreon.com slash real sankara hours. Um and uh yeah, bonus episodes like we 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 got a bunch of uh cool stuff. Um oh before like I, I sometimes I'll also put um my own music on our Patreon. Um but if you wanna see what I myself am doing musically, uh soundcloud.com slash Adam Hudson five um i was in a rock band for a while but most of what i'm doing is um african drumming and djembe so i i recorded a video for um this virtual performance for black history month and uh, i put it on i put it on our patreon so sometimes like i'll put like whatever uh videos i have of me performing sometimes i'll put them on patreon so um yeah that's all their stuff like you'll see and by the way usually those videos they're free i don't like don't really um charge charge for those but uh on my soundcloud if you're interested in supporting you know uh give like a small donation for my music it's it's on my soundcloud um but um i thought i'd mention that because like um this is this is pretty much like a pan-african uh marxist podcast and i think um where we're talking about pan-africanism uh um uh, i i'm a i'm a firm believer in um us us african-americans and africans in the diaspora uh i believe in us embracing our african roots and um promoting african culture and making the connection between um our culture in the diaspora, uh, with culture in Africa. So, um, that's, 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 that's something that I'm a huge believer in. I think is really important. Um, along with like, you know, talking about politics. Um, I think, you know, supporting and promoting culture is really important. So, um, yeah. So, you know, we're say we're a black Marxist slash pan-African Marxist podcast. Like, that's part of it um it's the culture as well not just the politics um 
and and also culture is a weapon for liberation as well so the two go to in my opinion the two go together uh black culture to me is a tool of liberation for us so no culture but revolutionary culture i think that's what Fanon says exactly exactly no culture but revolutionary culture so that's that's the spirit of this podcast so anyway let's do our sign out keep the faith and stay dangerous peace y'all see ya